You're listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at Help University, the University of Achievers. We'll be bringing you conversations with renowned psychologists and other health professionals that discuss a wide range of topics on mental health, psychology, and well-being. The Empowering Lives Podcast comes to you from the biggest psychology department in the whole of Malaysia. As we talk about the issues that matter to you most, stay tuned to this global podcast as we empower you to take away valuable insights and lessons that can improve your emotional health and well-being today. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Lives podcast, wherever you're listening from. My name is Sandy Clark, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Bruce Wampold to discuss what makes psychotherapy effective and how mental health professionals can develop their practice to ensure that they provide the best support possible to their clients. Bruce Wampold is an emeritus professor of counseling psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and his decades long career has made an invaluable contribution to the understanding of what makes psychotherapy effective. He is the author and co-author of several influential works, including the great psychotherapy debate, which has continued to inform and inspire mental health practitioners throughout the world since its first publication in 2001. So welcome to the show, Bruce. How are you doing? Good, Sandy. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk with you and give my reflections about psychotherapy. It's a, it's a real pleasure to, to have you on the show. And I thought we could jump straight into uh, the work that you have been uh, researching for, I think, 30 plus years by this point and looking at what makes uh, psychotherapy effective, what makes for good therapy. And maybe to start off with, can you share some of your thoughts on the misconceptions about what makes effective counseling or psychotherapy? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is um, aspects of the particular treatment we deliver. You know, all around the world, governments and uh, insurance companies and other officials are enamored with this idea of evidence-based practice or empirically supported treatments. So the idea there, and it's logical and makes sense really, that um, to provide the most effective services, we should look at the research to identify which are effective treatments and which don't work as well or don't work at all. But now decades of research have shown that there really are no differences in the effectiveness of treatments that are intended to be therapeutic. So both in clinical trials and in naturalistic settings, over and over again, the research shows that there's few, if any, differences among treatments for most disorders. Uh, if there are differences, they're very, very small. What seems to make a difference, um, and the research is pretty strong here now, is that the particular therapist makes a difference. So there's very effective cognitive behavioral therapists, CBT therapists, and then there's less effective 
CBT therapist. Same with psychodynamic or emotion-focused or ACT therapist. It's the particular therapist that makes the difference, not the particular treatment. That's quite an interesting point to make uh, since, especially for new therapists, uh, the focus is often on uh, their model and you know this idea that maybe if they're a CBT therapist or an ACT therapist, that that somehow uh, makes the difference. But it's interesting that you cite that uh, research to suggest that, that, that the model itself um, actually is a small uh, ingredient in terms of you know, effective therapy in, in that sense. Um, and, and later this year, you'll be delivering online training to, to Malaysian therapists on how they can improve and then become more effective in their practice. So touching on what you had mentioned about the misconception of what makes for effective therapy, what are some of the key ingredients that go into becoming a good therapist? Sandy, I just want to um, say one thing about uh, particular psychotherapeutic approaches, because mm-hmm. I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's important that trainees and practicing therapists have a model and deliver that model in a coherent and convincing way to their clients. So I'm not saying that, well, you don't really need to have a model. It's important that trainees learn, hopefully more than one model, but a model that that makes sense to them and that they can deliver effectively. uh, when I say the, the model doesn't seem to make a difference, it's important to keep in mind that we still need to have, and there's research to support this as well. Mm-hmm. We need a problem-focused model, a coherent way to, so that the, the client understands what we're doing in therapy and why we're doing it. So having said that, the evidence is also becoming clear that what Uh, characterizes effective therapists is a sophisticated set of interpersonal skills that can be used in difficult uh, interactions. You know, we're often dealing with clients uh, with strong emotion or repressed emotion. There are difficult aspects of doing therapy. The effective therapist use that difficult material in an effective way. So Tim Anderson talks about facilitative interpersonal skills and that more effective therapists have a more sophisticated sense or set of um, uh, these facilitative interpersonal skills. There are German researchers that look at it a little bit differently, but it's clear that the effective therapists are able to use these skills effectively in therapy. And this goes for cognitive behavioral therapists, psychodynamic therapists, uh, motion-focused therapists. You know, I don't know exactly what are the most popular models in Malaysia, but um, we know there's a lot of different approaches and there are effective therapists who use these skills in each of the different models. Can you mention some of those specific um, facilitative skills that go into uh, effective therapy? I mean, I know, for example, through your training, um, you'll be focusing on, I think, is it six of the skills that, that are usually required for you know, effective therapy? So can you just touch on maybe a few of those and, and sure. say why they're so important? I'll mention a few of them. Uh, empathy, 
understanding and warmth, uh, uh, you know, those are a little bit different, but they, they form a set of a very caring therapist focused on the well-being of the client. So the client feels understood, feels cared for. And we think of empathy. Well, you know, I got into therapy because I'm an empathic person. But often in the most difficult circumstances, um, empathy can be really a difficult skill uh, to do effectively. So empathy, warmth, caring, uh, kind of the Rogerian conditions uh, is an important one. Verbal fluency. And this is one that's not talked about enough. Tim Anderson, again, in his facilitative interpersonal skills called it verbal fluency. And I've worked with Tim to try to define what this is. It's not simply cogency, so what you say makes sense, but it's the convincing way you say it. Good therapists are convincing and persuasive to encourage the client to believe in the treatment being given and to believe that if they uh, work hard in therapy and follow the, the directions of the therapist, that this work will lead to reduction in distress and uh, better life. So verbal fluency, not just uh, what you say, but how you say it. There's a set of skills around uh, emotion and affect that are important. So effective therapists are able to decode the affect of uh, the client. You know, often clients don't show emotion, depends on your, your orientation, but they repress it or they keep it from awareness. And the good therapist is able to understand the affect that's expressed and is not expressed. So affective perception is an important skill. A related skill is the therapist's ability to express affect therapeutically themselves. So Tim calls it affective modulation, but it's the, the capacity maybe to contain affect and appear calm, for instance, in an agitated client or to help the client uh, express emotion when, when they have flat affect. So it, it's being able to express affect yourself. So those are some of the uh, skills that are necessary. You know, it would take all day maybe to, <laughs> to go through each of these in, in detail, but these are skills that can be learned, practiced, and that the therapist can become more effective at doing. So we kind of think of therapy as global. I'm, I'm a good therapist or I could get better, but we can break this down into particular skills that can be practiced. And this is important for trainees, but it's also important for practicing therapists. On that point, when you mentioned practicing therapists, we tend to think that uh, the more experience a therapist has, the more competent they are. And, you know, if you look at a psychotherapist with a PhD and 20 years under their belt, uh, that's going to look impressive on paper. You're going to assume that they are at the top of their game. But in your work, 
you cite research that suggests therapists can actually deteriorate over time so they become less effective. It almost sounds as though experience can sometimes breed confidence rather than competence. So what makes this situation arise and, and how can therapists safeguard against this? It's an interesting finding, isn't it, that therapists generally don't seem to improve over the course of their career. You know, in the study we did, they, they did deteriorate. It was a very small amount. So I like to say that clearly there's no evidence that experience leads to improvement for psychotherapists. Now, some therapists do improve over time, and I'll talk about those therapists in a minute. One of the difficulties in psychotherapy is we don't get actionable feedback about how we're doing. So maybe you're in a clinic that measures outcomes. And so you have access to, is my client reporting uh, less distress over the course of therapy? Or maybe they're reporting increased distress. That gives us some important information, but it's not feedback about how we might do something differently. In almost any domain where there are experts, you get very specific feedback. If you think of, of athletes, they get very specific feedback. Um, I like to use tennis as an example because tennis players, the best in the world, practice incessantly on particular skills with a coach. We don't do that in psychotherapy. So it's a very difficult domain in which to improve. So it looks like those therapists who do improve over the course of their careers have what uh, Helena Nissen Lee in Norway calls professional self-doubt. They want to get better. They question whether they're doing as well as they can. Uh, Scott Miller and Daryl Chow showed that uh, the more effective therapists spend more time outside of actually doing therapy in activities to improve. Uh, going to workshops, reviewing videos, reading about psychotherapy, getting supervision. So those therapists that, that do improve over time, it seems like make a concerted effort to improve their skills. So it isn't something that happens just by seeing more and more clients. And I agree with you, Sandy, that that uh, one thing therapists do get better at over the course of their career is talking about therapy. So they're more articulate about what they do and, and, and various models, but that's different than actually achieving good outcomes with clients. It's almost like um, you, you've mentioned before in previous talks and interviews that uh, to touch on the point you made earlier, that psychotherapy is one of those few professions where I think in one interview you said, you know, you go into a room by yourself with a client, it's all done privately, confidentially. Um, you're not allowed to speak about it aside from supervision. So pretty much most of the work that you're doing is, you know, you're in the driver's seat and, and no one's getting to observe that. Whereas, you know, if you're, let's say, a an athlete or a musician or a doctor or a teacher. There are people who are constantly observing what you're doing. They're giving you feedback. They're asking you to repeat certain points of your performance. 
in order to get a sense of how to improve in that area. But psychotherapy is one of those fields where that doesn't materialize. And I think that part of the issue becomes, you know, once you get your license and once you get that um, certificate that says that you can do this, there seems to be a sort of, for some people, there seems to be this idea that now I know what I'm doing. Um, and it, it sort of reminds me how uh, some people who have been married a long time explain marriage. They say that, <laughs> you know, once, once you say I do, some people think that the work stops there, but actually that's when it starts. So to me, it seems like once you get your license and once you get your certificate, really that's where the work begins. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I like your marriage metaphor um, because, yes, I mean, it, it's an entry line. So we're just barely finished our training and we go into practice. And, you know, in, in many countries, lifetime supervision is, is uh, mandated. But the supervision even then is not focused on skill. It's usually supportive supervision. Well, you have a difficult client, you know, with some personality features that, that make it difficult. And so there's support for how difficult it is to work with this particular client, maybe some suggestions, but it's not focused feedback in the way that an athlete, for instance, would get that focus feedback. There was a New York Times article on what uh, Rafael Nadal does on his days off at Wimbledon and how intensely he practices with the coach on every aspect of the game, serves, returns, volleys, cross-court shots, and so forth. And he does it with the intensity that he does when he's playing in a match. We don't do that in psychotherapy. We play the games or we do our therapy, but um, you know, after six, clients or seven clients during the day um, were exhausted. We may think about some difficult moment, but we certainly don't take a day off to practice the way tennis players do. And the same goes for any kind of um, sports people out there as well. I mean, you see people at the top of their game. Um, they certainly don't need to learn the sport, let's say, but like you say, to keep that e edge to maintain their performance, they need to be you know, I'm thinking some of the soccer players who are paid millions of dollars per month, um, they don't need to be taught how to play soccer, but they still need a coach to maintain that, that performance level. Why do you think it is that in psychotherapy, I mean, it's not a new field, it's been around for, for hundreds of years. Why do you think that even at this point, that message still hasn't been driven home about the need for deliberate practice? It's interesting, isn't it, Sandy, that we've been uh, practicing psychotherapy for, as you say, over a over hundred years. We haven't essentially changed how we train therapists. Carl Rogers was the first to actually record sessions so that he could look at aspects that go on. There's this tradition that um, what we do is, is this private moment confidential moment, intimate moment between a client and a therapist. And this is something they share and is not to be, to be discussed or disclosed or examined uh, in this way. So it, it's just a, a strong 
tradition, I think. And we should mention psychotherapy is remarkably effective. So clinicians in practice achieve on average very uh, uh, remarkable benefits. You know, it's as effective as uh, medications for most mental disorders. Just sitting with a therapist for one hour a week has a remarkable benefit. It's the fact that we could do something differently to improve. And that improvement, and we can show this statistically, that a small improvement by each therapist would result in a remarkably better outcomes for clients. And so we tend to be rather satisfied. You know, it's interesting to come back to what we discussed right at the beginning. The energy seems to go into developing new treatments. So every year there's some new treatments that uh, are being uh, offered and advertised, you know, act as a relatively new treatment. It's no more effective than the treatments uh, that came before it. So let's put our energy uh, helping therapists be more effective rather than developing a new treatment to disseminate and promote. Previously, you have mentioned uh, this idea that, you know, there are so many approaches out there. I think there are now hundreds and hundreds of, of new approaches available to, to therapists, and some of them are um, evidence-based, empirically sound, others not so much. Sometimes there's this kind of debate that arises to say that essentially, if uh, an approach, whatever you're doing in therapy is anecdotally sound, i.e. it works for people, right, regardless of whether it's evidence-based or not, then, then that's fair enough. But there's a kind of danger sometimes potentially, you know, relying on models or approaches that haven't been, let's say, sufficiently tested might lead to some problems further down the line. So in terms of the, the evidence-based stuff, in your opinion, why is that important that we should align ourselves to evidence-based approaches? Or is that important? Does the anecdotal stuff have just as much of an effect in the evidence-based uh, therapies? As psychologists and counselors, we should constrain ourselves to well-accepted therapies. There's a great variety of them. So it isn't a question of restricting either the, the uh, therapist choice or the patient's choice for a particular therapy. But what's really important is that what's accountable is the therapist for their outcomes. So as a therapist, I'm responsible and should be accountable for the benefits that accrue to my, my clients. So if I'm not achieving what is clearly kind of a, a benchmark for this type of patient, then there's some concern about uh, the way I'm practicing. So instead of being accountable by saying, I'm giving an evidence-based treatment, CBT or psychodynamic or whatever it might be, the accountability should be at the patient outcome level. Are the clients I'm treating benefiting from what I'm doing, regardless of the treatment I deliver? So a related point is, and, and uh, Jerome Frank said this uh, decades ago, that we should be 
competent at delivering more than one approach because we'll have clients who may respond well to CBT, but for others, the structure is too uh, restricting and they want something more insight and uh, psychodynamically oriented. So we should be skilled at giving more than one uh, form of treatment. So if a client comes in and you tell the client, well, this is the way I work, and you haven't listened to what they want in therapy, then you've foreclosed maybe an opportunity to help them. So one of the, the, the skills when we, we went back is flexibility, Sandy. Mm-hmm. We have to be flexible in the way we, we give our treatments. If something isn't working, um, we need to discuss it with the client and um, think about doing something different. And building on your point here about flexibility and being able to draw from more than one model, let's say, some of the issues that that we might experience here is that people might go for a one-day workshop or a three-day workshop on a model and maybe claim to be proficient in that model. Just to give a sense for new therapists especially, in your opinion, when you're trying to work with a model to learn an approach, how well developed do they need to be in order to be able to use that model proficiently and sufficiently for the client? Yeah, it's a good question, Sandy. Um, You know, in many different treatments, um, the developers have a, a kind of a systematic program of what's necessary to become competent in a model. So uh, uh, Marshall Linehan's uh, dialectic behavior therapy, for instance, you know, you have to go to the beginning workshops, you have to submit tapes, get feedback, uh, take advanced courses. So learning a model is a pretty complex process. You can't learn it just by going to a, to a weekend workshop and get the, the major aspects of this. Now, having said that, again, it's how you deliver that treatment that's really important. So you can follow the manual quite well, go through the steps, uh, and even kind of the slavish adherence to the manual may actually be harmful. So it's the, it's the way you, you implement the model that's really important. And interestingly, Sandy, if you talk to the developers of treatments, uh, even though they have manuals and they advertise that this is a very effective treatment, maybe more effective than other treatments, they will agree that the way in which you deliver the treatment is really important. So the factors that I talked about earlier are recognized by uh, most developers of treatments and advocates of particular treatments as really being important. So there's, there's really that sense of it is important for people to have a model. Um, it's important that people be able to draw on more than one model, depending on the client's preference. But it's really about the personal qualities, the way that the therapist is able to deliver that therapy in a way that makes sense to the client. I agree with that. We, we try to simplify it and say, you know, that they need to, to give the treatment in a convincing and uh, skilled way. But 
that's no easy thing. Those are the skills that we talked about earlier, and they're, they're complex skills. Psychotherapy is a very complex endeavor, probably more complex than, than most uh, endeavors we think about. I mean, I talk a lot of, with my brother, who's a medical doctor, and it's clear that psychotherapy has nuances and complexity and sophistication that exceeds that which is expected by medical doctors. So it's a complex task. But these are, again, and I harp on this because I, I feel passionate about it. These are skills we can learn and practice and get better at. Maybe just to wrap up what you've said there, Bruce, uh, in terms of um, if psychology students and therapists uh, who might be listening in, what would your advice be to them in terms of how they should approach their own development and learning? How should we think about what it means for us to be effective therapists? And, and, and what would you say would lie at or should lie at the heart of someone's professional growth? What should be the sort of, you know, th- those kind of considerations that people who are especially starting out, um, you know, what should they be thinking about? How should they look at their progression as a therapist? You know, at the heart of this is that as therapists, we get into the field because we want to help people who are distressed. I mean, that characterizes why we choose uh, this profession. The bottom line should be, are we actually helping uh, our clients improve? So this is why I think it's really important uh, at the very minimum that we have some way to measure the benefits. I've heard therapists say, well, I know when a client is not getting better or I know when they're progressing. But it turns out there's research to support this by uh, Mike Lambert and, and colleagues that therapists are not able to identify patients who are deteriorating. You know, Sandy, I interchange. Uh, patients and clients, because it depends on on the audience and and, uh, the context. But we have to, at the very least, do this measurement so we we know if we're actually achieving outcomes that are reflective of patients benefiting from the treatment. Then uh, the second part of this is to make an effort to improve those outcomes. It may be that I'm a pretty effective therapist. But if I could improve, additional clients would benefit from the treatment. So it's this continual desire and action to improve that's really important. Again, you know, I understand the the pressures on therapists. You know, after you see six clients in a day, the last thing you want to do is spend an hour or two making an effort to improve. So I would say this also, because we've been talking at the therapist's level, managers of care should make sure there's the opportunity for those people who work at their agency to have time for deliberate practice and efforts to improve. Sandy, I, I do some work with an agency called the Calgary Counseling Center in Canada. And the agency is dedicated 
to deliberate practice and the improvement of outcomes. And if you look at their data and they measure the outcomes continually for all of their clients, over the years, they've actually improved the services that they provide. More clients are benefiting as each year goes by. And that's because the agency's dedicated to improvement. And that's another aspect we really haven't talked about is that it's not just the responsibility of the therapist to improve. It's the responsibility of the agencies and the system to make that possible and to put in place uh, policies and procedures to do that. I think that's an important point that you make, that it's not just about the, the therapists looking after their own growth, but really the support systems that allow that to happen. And um, uh, like you say, maybe sometimes that's difficult if um, in this profession, you know, certain systems or centers or um, let's say universities are kind of stuck in their traditional ways of doing things. And um, maybe to sort of look at that and, and review that as, as time moves on, especially when it comes to things like telepsychology and online therapy that we were talking about before this uh, recording. And um, I, I think as uh, therapists, as managers, as educators, it's, would you say it's about sort of, you know, having that regular review of how things are being done and sort of updating wherever it's necessary to do so? Any viable process is going to become archaic unless there's constant innovation. We know this about companies, about engineering, about medicine, and it's true for our field as well. We can't be content just to keep doing things as we've done them. We need to innovate and make effort to, to change and improve. That's, uh, you know, just as the therapist can't be content with what they're doing and have to make the effort, as a field, we have to do the same thing. So I really appreciate the opportunity to give that message that both as individuals, therapists, and as a field, we have to constantly innovate and try new approaches. And that doesn't mean new psychotherapy approaches. We've already talked about that that's not going to lead to improvement. It's the really focusing on the most important part of therapy, and that's the therapist and helping therapists improve. And I think that's a fantastic point to, to end on. And I uh, just really wanted to thank you for your time, Bruce, and taking uh, your time to, to do this podcast episode. Well, thank you, Sandy, for the opportunity and I wish everybody the best in this endeavor. It's tough work, um, but we're in it because we want to help clients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, so thank you very much, Bruce. And, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of Empowering Lives. For more discussions on psychology and mental health topics, you can catch up with all of our previous episodes, which are available on Spotify and Anchor.fm. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at HELP University, Malaysia, the University of Achievers. 
For more information about Help University, visit www.help.edu.my and learn about our world-class programs and mental health services. Thank you for listening. And remember, together we can empower each other to build rich and meaningful lives driven by purpose, vision, and values.